And now I'd like to introduce our favorite moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is a fourth generation Californian. He writes about his home state and its politics, media, labor, and real estate. He is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation and co-author of the forthcoming California Crack-Up, How Reform Broke the Golden State and How We Can Fix It. His previous book was The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy. Mr. Matthews is a columnist for the Daily Beast, and his work appears in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Politico. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Joe Matthews. Thank you, uh, thank you very much, Dulce. Thanks to um, everyone who made this possible, to Zocalo, to SC, and the, the Institute for California in the West, and, and to the Haynes Foundation. I'm, I'm quite sure that if uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Haynes were around today, you would have loved this event. Um, he thought a lot about uh, Switzerland when he was um, thinking, trying to bring reform to Los Angeles and California in the early 20th century and uh, admired its system of government. Now, I'm, I'm glad to have this particular panel. I can't imagine four people that I know uh, who, who uh, sort of more uh, embody the word ubiquitous. These are folks who are sort of literally everywhere in their different, uh, in their different fields, in their different places, and they've come a long way from as far as uh, Falun, Sweden in the north, and um, even farther west when you account for traffic, when I think uh, Georgia's office is west of the 405. So this is kind of an artificial idea, this, this question, uh, which is uh, the more d democratic place, uh, Zurich uh, or Los Angeles. But the idea uh, here is that in a time of great of governance crisis in California and Los Angeles, at a time when none of the solutions seem to match the peril, there's a real need to look for new ideas, and it makes sense to look to places that share some of the elements of our, of our governing structure and to reflect on differences um, and see what we might learn. And Zurich and LA have some real important similarities. Um, they're both known around the world as very globally-oriented cities, sources of capital, both fiscal and cultural, for the world, um, and a destination for immigrants with big dreams. And for better and for worse, they also share an important political distinction. Each is the largest city, the de facto capital, if not the governmental capital, in one of the two world's two leading centers of direct democracy. No place in the world has used the citizens' initiative or referendum with as much force or, or nearly as often as California and Switzerland. The Oregonians have a bit of an argument there. And Zurich and LA were each first. Uh, Zurich was the first canton in Switzerland to adopt a modern system of direct democracy. And in 1903, uh, Los Angeles reformers who had studied the Swiss example followed suit by adopting the first municipal system of direct democracy in the United States. The state of California um, followed suit in 1911. So it'll be 100 years next year. And a century later, direct democracy, the heart of civic and political life in both California and, and Switzerland, for better and for worse. Um, in each place, the process faces controversy and challenges, and the questions of the, lots of questions about the democratic context, uh, the kinds of institutions, uh, methods, rules, the integration rep with representative institutions. The real question of how, um, the question that I is to talk about different methods in these two places for getting citizen input and citizen involvement, citizen engagement, um, and, and you know, direct binding citizen impact uh, decision-making, how these two places do it and don't do it, the strengths and weaknesses, and, and, how, and, and you know, what we might learn from each other. So I've, I've gone on a little too long. I want to start with 
Bruno Kaufman, uh, who's a, a, a true jack of all trades. Um, he's, uh, he's Swiss, uh, grew up in Switzerland, has lived and worked in, uh, in, in Zurich as a journalist. Um, he actually now lives in uh, Sweden, though he um, uh, reports for Swiss National Radio and writes for uh, the biggest newspaper in Zurich from his... Um, uh, from around Northern Europe. He, he's also a Swedish citizen, incomprehensibly a, a, a true enthusiast of the world's roller coasters. So roller coasters and direct democracy. Um, why does it make sense to have this, talk about this comparison? What do you think we can learn from looking at sort of the cases of Zurich and LA, California and Switzerland? You're someone, you're someone who's also is a political scientist, president of the Initiative and Referendum Institute of Europe. You've traveled the world, literally, I don't know how many countries it is, talking to people who are involved in direct and participatory democracy. What's the value of looking at these two places and, and what's, what's, what's different about them? Thank you very much, Joe. I'm happy to be in the roller coaster capital of the world. Uh, <laughs> I have no time to use it, but uh, yes, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a very privileged guy. I, I, I have voting rights in, in nine uh, constituencies, so I, I'm also able to, to sign initiatives in many different places. And uh, I'm, in fact, very much interested in trying to, to, uh, to, uh, to shift sometimes the perspective and to understand better what do we have in one place, what do we don't have in another place. And just when you have just the lights on you, you don't see, I cannot see you. I mean, you have to, to go on the other side and look down. And this is exactly the issue about when we are discussing about uh, uh, direct democracy and democracy as such, that we are so much concerned about what we have and we don't really know what it is valid in comparison to others. And I think these two places, Zurich and Los Angeles, are in a, in a, in a global perspective really interesting because, as you have said, these are the two places in the world where modern forms of direct democracy, which are not assembly democracy, but democracy, direct democracy uh, at the ballot by initiative have been developed mostly and have in a way also created a record and where you can learn from the experience. And the thing is, of course, that we have to learn, learning by doing is the issue, not just by theory. And the problem is that we very often have to learn by burning. Well, you believe Zurich is a very democratic place, and you've you've worked there, lived there. What is it? What what are the characteristics of it, in your view, that make it democratic? I mean, how do you define democracy for the basis of this conversation, and what what makes Zurich democratic? I mean, the the, the, the idea of democracy is, of course, what it means: rule by the people. Uh, and in in a modern sense, it means rule by the people in a in a in an embedded concept of, of 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 modernity, which means not only just the majority is ruling, but the uh, the. the the, the discussion, the dialogue is producing results, results which people f find is legitimate. And I think Zurich is a good place to show uh, that it's not just for very small places that democracy can work. In fact, Zurich is the place in Switzerland where the most activity and the longest activity of direct democracy can be shown. So the biggest city in Switzerland has the most, for instance, votes. And it shows that you can use these instruments in a more complex, in a, in a bigger size than just in the smaller place. In very, very many small places, villages, it's very hard to have a, a living democracy because the social control, the ideas of traditions are very much 
uh, inflicting on the freedom of speech, of the freedom to express, and the freedom also to, to have different opinions. So I think uh, Zurich is a good example where you can use where these instruments have been developed for a long time and have been fine-tuned uh, by the process, for instance. Now, now Zurich's a big place, you said, 1.1 million people in the canton, the sort of state. It's a city in a state, and then there's a city of, within that canton of, of 370,000 people. Much, you know, there's a city of L.A. of 4 million people within a county of 10 million. Andreas Gross, who's a, is a member of the Swiss uh, uh, federal parliament, he represents the canton of Zurich. Um, he's also a member of the uh, the Council of Europe, uh, where he actually leads the the Social Democrats there, and um, he teaches political science at the universities of Marburg and, and Spire. Um, director of the Scientific Institute for Direct Democracy in Saint Ursan. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, is the author of many books on democracy, on initiative and referendum. Um, I could go on, um, but Andy, you're the you're the politician up here, so I have to ask you the hardest questions. And and so let me. When you look at Zurich as a, as a place for democracy, I mean, what specific actions or institutions strike you as democratic and also give you a chance to sort of criticize your own, your own constituency? Where do you fall short in your view? You know, the, the basic line of democracy is that life is not a destiny, that you have instruments where you can influence your existence together with others. And... Uh, the theoretically, the basic point, the, the, the demand of democracy is that those who are concerned of a decision, they should be part of the decision-making process. And normally, uh, you have elections, and you have elections only. And we are not against elections. We are not elections, you mean, in the Swiss way, an election of a, a person to represent exactly, you in office. Exactly. Yes. And uh, you, you elect a parliament, and in many European countries, people are suffering that this is democracy, only democracy, electing a parliament. And in Switzerland, uh, they made already between 1848 and 1870 in Zurich the experience that electing a parliament alone is not enough for democracy. They have many shortcomings, many people feel not well represented, and that's why they need between these elections of parliamentarians, they need instruments where they can influence the public decision-making process, the law-making, or the constitutional changes directly, not indirectly by the representatives. So, so briefly, how does that work? <coughs> how, how, how often do you do have these, you know, period, these votes yeah. on, on issues? This is, a very, this, this is a very good question, Joe, because, you know, we have the same system, but we have a a, di a very different way how the system is working, how the system is organized. And by the same and system, just so everyone is clear, initiative and referendum, exactly. the initiating of a, of a law or a, would it be a charter amendment, a constitutional amendment? Both. And or a referendum, a reversal of, of some act that the yes. parliament has made. The big difference is that we vote on issues not on the same day like we elect persons into the parliament. Uh, because the logic of person and cho choosing persons or parties and voting on issues is totally different. And we have four times a year, we have days where you decide on issues. And every four years, we also have a day where you elect your parliament on all the level, on the regional level, on the local level, and on the national level. What kind of things are you voting on recently have you, in Zurich? What, what sorts of issues have been on those 
on those those sort of quarterly. You mean on the town level now? Yeah, yeah. On the town level, you know, politicians in Switzerland they can't spend any money without the consent of the people. Mm-hmm. So building such a center, for instance, or or I heard that you need a center. The way you would do it in Switzerland, in Zurich, is that you ask for a center, and then uh, the basic decision is: Do you need the center? You want the center or not? And then the second uh, question, two years afterwards, after the city planned uh, planned the center, is: Do you want to spend such an amount of money for the center? Mm-hmm. You you can't spend more than nine million of dollars without the consent of the people. Mm-hmm. So why, every, why nine million? This is this is a definition. <laughs> which is, uh, you, you can you can. It's yeah. true that this is a classical debate. Is these limits are there too? And these too are just low? are these public buildings? Or, I mean, you know, we we, we you know down the street uh, we've we've got you know we build stadiums sometimes with public sta- money no, no, and, and private money in combination. When, whenever public money is used and it it goes over this this limit, then you need the uh, the consent of the people. And so there are decisions which come out of the parliament and the government to the people, and there are also decisions where a a minority of citizens propose to all the citizens a change. And then you have these two kinds of votes. And as Bruno said, uh, Zurich is one of the towns where you have the most votes uh, when you compare it with all the countries, uh, with all the... Uh, cantons on towns in Switzerland. And then back to my first question. Uh, lastly, wh- wh- where where does where does where is Zurich as a canton and town fall short? Do you think? On yes, democratic that, that's, norms? excuse me. That, uh, the biggest problem we have is that, and I, I remember when I said, democracy means that when you are concerned by a decision, you should be part of the decision-making process. We have about thirty percent of people living in Zurich who are not Swiss citizens. And because they are not Swiss citizens, they are excluded of the democratic process. And this is the biggest shortcoming, because uh, we should. And the, the other part, which is excluded, of, is of course those are of course those who are not le- are, are less than 18. So there are people who want to go down to 16, but also 16. I had a son who was already able, who thought he was able with 13 to make decisions. And, and <laughs> was the, he? Uh, yes, and because <laughs> when, the te- when they had in school uh, 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 some kind of uh, lessons on politics and how the state is organized, in three hours he corrected four times the teacher and then the teacher <laughs> sent him off. <laughs> <laughs> interesting, interesting. Um, let's um, let's um, uh, uh, bring Kathy in. Uh, um, um, Kathy Fing's the uh, the executive director of California Common Cause, um, um, and and has done so many different important things in election and political reform. Um, uh, but I think one that many people may know best is she's the co-author of Prop 11, which was the successful uh, redistricting reform initiative uh, passed statewide by voters in California um, in 2008. Um, she's uh, sat on the, the Secretary of State's advisory committee for the Help America Vote Act. LA County Human Relations Commission, and, and prior to joining Common Cause, she directed the Voting Rights and Anti-Discrimination Unit of the Asian Pacific American Legal Center. Um, you know, I know um, it's a pretty tough time in, in LA and California, and we're looking at all the, um, the, uh, the things that aren't working and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to make them work, but are there, you know, to, to, uh, 
we asked uh, uh, Andy to be critical and maybe asked you to sort of, you know, what are, what are, are we doing right in mm -hmm. terms of, of democracy and citizen input and giving citizens a, you know, a voice that really I think that's matters. the hard question. The hardest question is what are we doing right? right. Um, <laughs> I, I think that it's important to kind of provide some context for, for how um, California's government works and, and to some extent as a microcosm what, what Los Angeles has set up. So in the early, 1800, uh, sorry, early 1900s, um, what was happening in the state was that um, we had populations in certain areas, San Francisco, growing population in Los Angeles, and this real feeling of um, frustration because uh, although we were a, a, a budding state with a, a government that we had just established, um, there was a real feeling that the government that had been established was largely controlled by uh, the robber barons who had established the railroads. So four individuals um, who built the railroads to California were also the people who, through money, power, and influence, essentially determined who was uh, chosen for the legislature, who was chosen for um, our, our judicial system, and also who was chosen um, uh, at, the, at the local level to represent us. And I think that during that time, uh, there was a big push through the progressive movement um, led by Hiram Johnson looking at what was happening in other countries like Switzerland to say, is there a way for us to create a safety valve for voters when we feel that our government is not being responsive or when we feel like our government is being controlled by corporate interests um, to give them an alternative way of um, crafting laws to uh, allow their, their views to be heard because there are times when representative democracy that is electing individuals to, to go to an assembly to, to make decisions don't, does not work. At the time, I think that the way that the initiative process was envisioned was that it was really a, an alternative. Um, the way it's described oftentimes is a release valve or a safety valve. If the legislature's not functioning, then you turn to the initiative process um, in order to tweak it. And I think that one of those examples was Proposition 11 where the legislature has all the way up until uh, 2008 been in charge of drawing their own district lines. And you can imagine that when you have the opportunity every 10 years after the census to draw your own district lines, one of the chief motivating factors is to draw lines for yourself where you can bring in your favorite constituents and your favorite donors and ensure that anybody who might be a potential challenger is drawn out of your district or a person or a constituency that's not going to vote your way is drawn out of your district. So it becomes a very self-serving process. And um, despite the fact that we had gone to the legislature again and again um, to try to uh, get a piece of legislation that would remedy this problem, remove the, the conflict of interest by creating an independent citizens commission as an alternative body to draw those lines based on our demographics and our, our changing communities. The legislature, because it's in their interest to protect themselves, had no interest in passing or putting onto the ballot um, language that would create this, this independent citizens commission. And so we had to use the, the direct democracy process of collecting signatures and putting it onto the ballot ourselves. Now, I think that that's not just because I wrote it, but I think it's actually one of the examples of where you do want to use direct democracy. And, and in that situation, um, 
it was a close race, but voters made the right decision. And it would not have been, it would never have happened had we only had a process where the legislature makes its own rules, because in many other states, in fact, most other states, they don't have a process um, for voters to put things onto the ballot. And despite the fact that there's uh, many citizen movements to try to push for an independent redistricting commission, they, they don't get anywhere because they don't have an opportunity to have this safety valve system. I think that um, the challenge is that uh, in California, we have seen a sp skyrocketing of the number of initiatives that have been placed onto the ballot and also a skyrocketing in terms of the cost and the amount that is spent on initiatives so that it becomes a real money race. And those with the most money have uh, the best ability to be able to put something before the voters and be able to win initiatives. And so sometimes, or oftentimes, what happens is that it becomes not a matter of uh, competition of the best ideas, but competition of money. Who has the most and who has the ability to speak to voters as a result? I will just say quickly would you, one. Would you say the influence of money is what uh, is the biggest problem? Uh, you know, the sort of that undermines the. I, I think that is that's absolutely true. I think whether it's candidates or issues, um, the problem is is that um, we're not having a true discussion um, where people are deliberating. What people are getting is um, thirty-second ads on television based on who was able to buy those ads, um, and so we oftentimes make our decisions on very little information, and I think it's a real turnoff for voters. I think that the other big thing, though, that is positive about what we do in California and in Los Angeles is that um, we have a very robust system of campaign disclosures. Um, and so, for the most part, it means that people have an ability to kind of look at uh, who's funding what and to be able to make decisions about whether to vote on something based on that. And a lot of times, unfortunately, that becomes the substitute for understanding what the initiative is really about because you use these litmus, litmus tests, right? Is it being funded by somebody that I like? Is it being funded by or opposed by somebody who I don't like? Um, that determines then uh, whether or not I like the initiative, even though I'm not exactly sure I understand this initiative that's talking about electricity de deregulation or you know, any number of initiatives that we are asked to vote on where you're asked to be somewhat of an expert and it's very difficult to parse out what the right or wrong side is. Well, I'm gonna bring uh, George in here and, and um, uh, George Kiefer uh, um, has, uh, has served this uh, city in many different ways. Um, um, perhaps most uh, 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 directly in terms of um, uh, relevance to our subject today, um, in his um, in his work chairing the commission that uh, that uh, rewrote the city charter, um, the first full revision in 75 years that was adopted in uh, in 1999. Um, he's a lawyer at Minot uh, Phelps, chairs the firm's government and regulatory policy division, um, works on on all sorts of uh, legal and policy issues for business and public entities. Um, He's been the, uh, uh, the, the the Los Angeles Area Chamber of Commerce. He's on the Board of Regents of the University of California. I could go on. Um, I, you know, we, we had a, that charter commission experience um, and, and, and really made a lot of significant changes in the city. Um, did, we, did we make ourselves more democratic as a result of that process? And to the extent we did, was it, how much of that was a good thing? <coughs> well, I think that was only, that was there were a lot of motivations for the charter change. Uh, the mayor wanted more power uh, in a considered a weak mayor system. 
there were lots of uh, things that had been developed over years that needed to be fixed, and then there was a movement for um, more local control uh, that was happening. And one of the results of the charter was the creation of neighborhood councils, which were opposed strongly by some and pushed strongly by others. Uh, some wanted to give the neighborhood councils voting authority and land use decision authority and budgetary authority about their local areas, and others didn't want to give them any authority. We ended up compromising, really, and that, like a political process, the charter was a political process, and we, we, we made them advisory, or we intended to make them advisory. Uh, they actually have a lot of authority with respect to some council members, won't do anything if the, council, if the neighborhood council goes a certain way. Others do not pay as much attention. They, uh, I worried when we set it up that we weren't prepared for it. I mean, it's a city, it's a city of 467 square miles. What, we're not used to it. And I, I think it back, gets back to, uh, to, to Bruno's point about how valuable these discussions can be if you can, if you can keep them going for a while. Uh, because you see that there's lots of different ways to do something, and you still call it democratic. Um, we were always uh, asked to take a look at New York, strong mayor system, or Chicago. Well, we need a strong mayor. Uh, and we did uh, look at those cities, and we looked at other cities as well and tried to, to make comparisons. It was almost impossible to compare one cultural development in, in an area and their system to your own, and then, and then adapt something alone uh, on top of it. So one thing I learned in that process was we, you, you just couldn't stick one element onto another system without understanding that system and the culture that, that surrounds the rules. I find that the rules are developed and then the culture adapts to adjust to it and to, and to, and to make up for weaknesses in it. Um, I would say that uh, in looking at these other systems, whether you know, it's a city... Uh, charter or whether it's a state system, it's, t- it's terrific to get a perspective from the outside. To tell you more about it, it's unwise to, to simply think that you can adopt it without understanding what is driving it. And I think so much, uh, I've con- concluded in my own mind that many of the problems that we find in each of our own systems are fairly apparent to people who are spending time looking at them, but are very difficult to solve politically because of vested interests, because of just the way things are. Uh, it, it is very difficult to change. People generally who are looking at the initiative process in California think that it's out of control, think that people do not know what they're voting on, um, think that there are too many initiatives on the ballot. Um, uh, that there's an er- an, but it's difficult to get a change in that. Um, People think there's too much money in politics. Difficult to change it. And, and, and it's interesting how our government has, has, has developed com- in comparison to Switzerland on the issue of money and campaigns. We equate constitutionally money with free speech. We, we've tied it together by our body of laws over, over time. We've concluded Supreme that. Court Supreme Court has, and that's made the rule. Well, you know, I learned from Andy earlier t- tonight that that political ads are not permitted. Is that correct? On, TV. On television during a campaign. All the time. All the time. Anytime. Well, here that would be viewed as unconstitutional, anti-free speech. They're both democracies, right. and and you'd have people defending one system adamantly, saying that's undemocratic and to to ban 
political advertising. Mm -hmm. It tells you how these systems can grow up so differently um, and, and how it helps to look at how somebody else has done it and it's not immoral <laughs> to be doing it that way and still call it a democracy. Let me follow up and also um, try to spin this into a, so we get this, we've, we've made some broad strokes and get this into a, a, a real, just t telling stories and examples and, and the context, not just the initiative process, but the larger democratic context and institutions around this. But, you know, you, you talked about the frustration of, of getting things done and, and delivering, and, and you're someone I, I always remember when there was, there was a sort of, some sort of controversy or difficulty or thicket um, that couldn't be solved in City Hall when I used to hang out there as an LA Times reporter, suddenly you would appear at the door um, <laughs> talking to folks. You know, we, we do have you know, a, lot, a lot of ways for citizens to engage in a process, whether it's directly through an initiative to, to, to be present for things. I mean, to what extent is that, or is that, a, is that make, does that make the act of governance, the act of delivering and getting things done, you know, you know, and, and acting on the priorities and the issues that, that, that people democratically want acted on, have, does that make things more difficult? Are we, are we too democratic in some ways? Well, my own view is that we've, we've have, we have too much, this will sound horrible when you say it, this, we have too much <laughs> democracy in, in California. We've forgotten that it's a, it's a, we've gotten it confused. We formed a republic in the country, not a democracy. So when we talk and use these words, we don't use them, you know, we use them in a way that kind of mis misguides us. Uh, making the world safe for democracy, you know, is a, it's, 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 it sounds better than making this, the world safe for representative government or for a republic. But for me, open meeting laws, other things in this country, we've shifted far, far to, in that direction, far, far in, in, in the era of, of, of everything open. And it's because we've lost trust. We've lost faith in uh, representative government. So we believe the only answer is let's open the whole thing up and look at it. Um, and, and again, on a comparative basis, you will find in another country, thought of as just as much a democracy, they will not have all of their committee meetings all open to the public. They will recognize that a certain amount of dialogue has to occur between representatives to reach a consensus. So when you would see me at City Hall or someplace, it, you know, on a public issue, not on a client issue, it would be actually trying to walk around and try to understand where people are coming from. Mm -hmm. Because literally, those of us in Los Angeles should know the city council cannot very easily talk to each other except in an open meeting. And committees of three, no one can, none can talk to each other before they get to the open meeting where everything is discussed there. Well, that's very limiting, and that is not, in my judgment, what the founding fathers of the country or the state thought of in forming the government. So in some ways, our view of what democracy should be and our solution, more democracy is always better, I think is, is not right. Now, today we're talking about the initiative process and, and yeah. certain aspects of it and letting off steam and what they do. And so, and so I think they have, they, yeah. there's a place for that. But right now, our problem is not that we don't have enough democracy, in my judgment. In my judgment, our problem is we don't have enough faith to, and we have too much of the, of the focus of our political leadership on what the public is thinking day by day, poll by poll, and reacting to that. Let me let me just jump off uh, to get into some specifics. Some 
mentioned, you know, very tend to be very strong open meeting laws here in in California. What's it like? You know, you're you're a public official in Switzerland. How much of your business can do you have to do in public? Are you required to do in public? And how much can you really negotiate and try to work things out with people in in private? You know, the, uh, when I listen to George, it, that's very it's very interesting. I would after after listening to you, I would say. You have too much publicity, but not too much democracy, because too much publicity does not lead to more democracy. Mm. I think it's a basic human right that you, in order to be, at, in order to become more wise, th- every debate is an attempt to be to become more intelligent, more knowledgeable, more wise, mm. and and you have to do, be able to do that without everybody listening, in order to do it right. Because you have to discuss difficult questions. You have to have the right to make a mistake in order to learn how to overcome this mistake. When everybody is looking all the time, you are so afraid to make a mistake that you don't really touch the real issues, you don't touch the real way, Mm -hmm. and you are not coming out of yourself. You're playing a role. You're you're an actor and not a Mm -hmm. citizen. And and this is... uh, against democracy. We, we have, you know, the, the, the secrecy of power is that it's secret. And people would know how it's really functioning. They would lose, uh, so to say, the, the fear in Europe. It, I, I'm uh, since 18 years in the parliament and I have many committee meetings. But in these committee meetings, although they are not public, many things are not absolutely not interesting. They're totally boring. They're, they're not. They're not public. They are not public, they're but it ha- it, it's good that they are not public because when they would be public, the real debates would be before the the, the meeting right. and, and other places. And I think you can't. It, it's totally wrong to prevent uh, people who have an office not to speak somewhere, anywhere about their concerns without uh, the, the the light of the public looking hmm. or, li- or listening. What common cause think of that? Right. Um, as as one of the organizations that helped to pass the Freedom of Information Act and, thank, and, thank and you. any number the and, thank you. and I'm pretty sure the the, but that's uh, the, same, the no and the, in in California many of the disclosure laws um, and the open meeting laws um, I I will be I will be honest and say I think that George has a point um, which is I think sometimes some of the best conversations that bring us together to find solutions for very um, difficult problems are ones where people can be open and frank. And it is true that um, if you have a challenge because people feel like they are performing for a camera or for an audience, um, they can't speak as faithfully um, or look for resolutions um, in as nuanced ways as they might But I think also there is a challenge because I think that, um, unfortunately, a lot of the open hearings rules and the transparency laws that we have are in reaction to some pretty bad things that have happened. Um, You know, so we have Freedom of Information Act largely in response to the Nixon administration's um, practice of total secrecy and denial and and lies. Um, We have... You know, I just came from a movie screening of Casino Jack, which talks about, in the 2000s, the 
pay-to-play atmosphere that existed in Congress where uh, Tom DeLay and uh, lobbyists like Jack Abramoff um, had a very cozy relationship where really money was brought um, through contribution campaign, to, contributions to campaigns to essentially buy access and buy legislation. And Tom DeLay, in a very proud way, says that's what the market is about. If you don't have money, then you, you don't have access. You, you pay to play. That is a true capitalist melding of, of democracy plus money. Um, but I think that, so I think that largely in reaction to that sort of thing, we have a lot of rules that say, okay, um, how do we ensure that our legislators who are elected to Sacramento or Washington, D.C. are really talking about the issues as opposed to slipping uh, an envelope under the, the table to, 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 buy, to have a, a vote bought? How do we make sure that it's not just um, because you're my friend and you know, I'm, I'm gonna work out a deal with you and I'm gonna um, ice George out of the decision um, as opposed to you know, basing it on some kind of po public policy analysis. I'm not sure that the strict, strict open meeting rules always achieve that. I think that is certainly the goal. Um, and I'd be really interested in hearing what some alternatives might be. Um, we talked a little bit about this notion, you know, um, and unfortunately, I think it doesn't, it is not so much in practice with the current administrations because they watched what happened to previous administrations and realized how, how damning it was. But during the Nixon years, um, everything was recorded. Uh, so every conversation that the president had with everybody was put, on on put down on tape. Now, the interesting trade-off was that those tapes were kept in a locked vault until a certain number of years after Nixon um, had passed. But once it came out, all the truth came out. Um, and I think he, you both encouraged candor, um, but at the same time, um, you also open up people's eyes to what really goes on in government, and that can be an important function. So uh, th that's maybe an interesting trade-off to allow conversations to happen, to always have them recorded and available eventually for, for discovery, um, but to give people a little bit of breathing time so that maybe it's not 100% live, CNN 24 hours, um, for, for people to judge and react to. Um, and I think that that's part of the processes that, that we've lost is this um, practice of deliberation, practice of, of having discussions, thinking about it, and uh, allowing ideas to percolate before reacting in a knee-jerk way through a 30-second soundbite. Um, um, well, no, so no, I, no, I'm no, not sure that I have the solution, no. but I agree that, that you may have put a finger on, on a potential problem. We want to get to audience questions for too long, so we're going to try to do the next sort of comparisons in sort of lightning fashion. Um, and that, that, that last point you were making about the, the soundbite leads us to sort of a basic question about the, con the direct democracy context in terms of media. We talked about the bans on TV ads. What about, what about the media institutions who, who cover and check? Um, you, you know, what's, what is, you're, you're a, a journalist for, you know, it seems like several different outlets in, in Switzerland. What, what, you know, is it public? Is it, is, are you public and government supported, your media outlets? Is it private? Is it a mix? You know, what's the, what's the, media, what's the media's role in this? And, 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 you know, here in the United States, we hear so much about the diminishing of the media, fewer checking. Are you seeing that in, in Switzerland, too? In yes, Germany? I mean, it's a big problem, of course, that uh, 
the media uh, is, is uh, especially under economic pressure, trying to, to diminish, uh, let's say, the service to the citizens, to inform them, to uh, help them in being a decision maker. Uh, I have had many discussions at the newspaper in Zurich I'm working for, uh, what is the role of a newspaper today uh, towards uh, the readers? And, uh, of course, the idea of, of just entertaining, to, to have very short bits, to have, a, I mean, this, this, this tabloid free newspapers are a hard competition on that, uh, and not to enable uh, the people to be re really good informed. Still, I would say the newspapers have a, have a big role, and I'm also working for the P Swiss Public uh, Radio, uh, and uh, it's, it's indeed a, a very important uh, element of the of the work of the journalists, because as a journalist, you are basically all the time confronted uh, with upcoming votes. And these are about issues and not so much about person. And this, this makes you uh, uh, always thinking, what do I have to report in order to make the people better informed? Now, are you, I mean, you're talking about the economic pressures. How, how, much, gov how much of the media is, is funded by the government? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, I mean, the public radio is, is, is funded by fees people are paying uh, for, 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 this, for this public TV and, and radio, and the newspapers are, are, are totally private. Perhaps you have to say also, in Switzerland is a small country. This is the big difference sure. to California. A little less than 8 million people, fewer than in LA County. And we have three different languages, uh, because uh, regional regions are, are dominated by different languages. Right. So we have, we have in every region, we have two TV channels and two radio channels. And six, uh, six radio and TV is not affordable, for, is not interested for private business. Mm -hmm. It's much too expensive. So you, you can't make money there. And the private capital would not go there. That's why, that's the real reason why it's public. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it would be not profitable for private. And until now, newspapers are still profitable. Until now. And that's, that's the big point. When the market is not enabling anymore the service you need for democracy. Then in Germany they started discussing you should, if you should also make a public uh, uh, base fundament for newspapers because the market is not paying anymore quality newspapers. Yeah, and this, I mean, this I must <coughs> say in Sweden where I'm living, I'm also working, there the idea is that wherever you have a newspaper in a place, the second newspaper is sponsored by public money in order to have at least two newspapers. Hmm. Your, two your points of use. Yeah. This is exactly. Yeah. Is, um, what about, um, we meant there was a brief discussion of campaign finance and disclosure. Um, we do a lot of disclosing here. Um, how, about, how about you all? Can, is, is it easy to find out who's backing the campaign? No, th this is exactly, no, I, I'm very interested in this debate and I'm working since 30 years to compare Switzerland with California. And I think we could learn so much from each other to improve and to overcome their own shortcomings. And what we could learn from Switzerland, from California, is exactly the transparency of who pays what and how much. Because in Switzerland, we have nothing in this sense. And uh, today, we are, uh, since 10 years, we are faced uh, with a movement, a national conservative movement, a nationalist movement, which is uh, sponsored by billionaires uh, who have an enormous... It's one billionaire, right? Uh, is it, isn't it really one billionaire, Mr. No, no, Blocker? No, 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 more than one. It's too easy, too simple. Too easy. <laughs> not so simple. Fair enough. No, no, it's not so simple. But many rich people 
sponsor nationalistic positions without the people knowing how much and why mm. and so. And, th and there, my propositions to, to reform the system to the better uh, in Switzerland is exactly to taking uh, many of these good uh, practices you have and experiences, and especially also the fairness rule you had once in the 60s and the 70s, yeah. where uh, uh, even ads have been fairly distributed because when you got uh, ten mi one million for one position, uh, you, ga you gave 100,000 for the other one. And this, this we can learn and we, we should learn because all other European countries, when it comes to elections for persons, they have also these, uh, these disclosures and these perhaps limits or, or fairness rules. And we are uh, uh, paradoxically one of those countries who have nothing in this sense. And it's misused today. And, yeah. and it's so important because when you only win because you have more money, the decision loses the legitimacy. And when decisions lose legitimacy, democ democracy is going down and it's away. And that loss of le <coughs> legitimacy, I think, is, is the, the biggest risk to democracy. Um, and historically, that is when democracy starts having more serious problems. Uh, you brought up the Fairness Doctrine, and I think it's helpful to just talk about what it, what it was um, when it was in place. Um, one of the pieces of the fair, Fairness Doctrine was that um, uh, every broadcast um, station, because the broadcast waves are essentially a public property that is then uh, a, a license is given to a private entity to broadcast on it, um, if they had a candidate, they had to give equal airtime to any opponents of that candidate. If they had uh, you know, airtime on Proposition X, they had to give equal airtime to the opponents of Proposition X. Um, and I think what's interesting is that, you know, now because that fairness doctrine no longer exists, two things have happened. One is that we have channels that specialize in talking to a particular audience or radio s stations mm -hmm. or, you know, radio jockeys who specialize in talking to just one narrow segment. Um, and I also think the other perverse effect is, um, you know, I think we sort of remember that there used to be these uh, debates where mm. all the candidates would sit together and respond to hard questions that came from journalists. And I think increasingly um, we see candidates essentially opting out of participating in debates um, because they can pick their own tailored forum to talk mm. to the voters who they want to talk to. So they have no interest in participating in debates. And I, I think it's, it is a very perverse situation when we have allowed somehow candidates to get away with that. Um, and most recent example, I mean, I love him to death, but Mayor Villaraigosa opted out of participating in any public debates during the most recent election because he was the incumbent and wasn't any point in giving the other side um, the dignity of a response. Well, I think that part of the, the health of uh, a conversation in a city is to encourage those conversations and to allow people to kind of ask questions, whether it's from your opponent or from your, your citizenry. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that I don't know how we put that back in because it, we have pushed so far against ha reinstating the fairness doctrine, but it does seem to me that we have lost the ability to have a conversation as a public. Kathy, you know, let me ask something about that. that uh, it was certainly a lot simpler 
1950 or 60, when you had one or two, then three, uh, broadcast channels giving the news. Uh, and whether you got the broadest perspective or not was a good question. Mm-hmm. But whatever the news was, was, everybody heard most of it together. Mm-hmm. So the first part of agreeing on a solution to a problem is hearing a common understanding of what the problem is or what the facts are. So people listen to the same general news, ABC, NBC, CBS here, form different conclusions, some li- tilted a little left, some tilted a little right. Today, one of, the, one of the difficulties, especially when you talk about now moving to initiative processes where the public is deciding, we're fractured in our news. And people are listening, as you say, Kathy, to, to news that's aimed at their viewpoint. And so it, it's just another way of looking at how difficult it is to reach a conclusion on, a, on solving a problem when no one sees the problem the same way, they can't see the solution the same way. And it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. It's interesting because the fairness doctrine was ended because people thought there'd be enough views out there that everyone would hear, that all views would be heard. Mm-hmm. And, but what has occurred to a great degree is groups of people are only hearing a particular view. Bruno, you want to get in? I mean, here comes really the, the issue of direct democracy in because I think that the very core of a democracy even in old times was the idea of the dialogue, of the debate mm-hmm. before the decision. Otherwise, it's not a difference to just a dictatorship. And here comes really the issue in that we today are living in, a, in, in societies where uh, public spheres are very fragmented. And it will continue because we have the internet, we are going less and less to this type of traditional public forums like newspapers or one TV station. So basically, technically, it's possible really to, to just have this single uh, uh, interest uh, information channels. So mm-hmm. people talk to each other. It's not a dialogue, it's a monologue. And the question is, not, of course, here now, how can we create in this very complex uh, 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 fragmented uh, societies, uh, conversations, which brings people together. And I think without the idea of having, for instance, a, 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 a common process of an initiative or having a popular vote coming up, the risk that in a, in a, a poorly indirect democracy, this fragmentation is even continuing mm. because the people who want to run for office, they, they of course are not interested to have this broad public debate on an issue. And we have, for instance, this problem and this challenge in the European Union today with 500 million people that there is totally, I mean, uh, an idea of certain interests are trying to influence decisions made in Brussels. And what we have achieved now in 20 years fight is the idea of there should be something like an initiative process on the European Union level. Mm. And in fact, uh, in the end of this year, we will introduce a process giving one million people from at least nine countries the right to propose European legislation if you go in, in order to create such a dialogue. Wow. If you go in that direction, you know, talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we do, we do. <laughs> because we would say, be careful. Don't, get, don't let the money into that system because if you think it's bad with the representatives, it is so easy to, to spend the money and move the public, at least in California. One last comment, because we've got to go to Q&A here. But th- this is exactly, you know, we don't think it 
totally convinced of direct democracy because it makes representative democracy more representative. You know, it's not an alternative, it's a complementary that, You know side. what, that's a really important point. I, we need to go to Q&A, but I think that's a distinction we need to make probably clear to the audience. And when you say cooperative, that's not just purely culture, right? There's, there's tools. I mean, California's initiative process, famously, exactly. you qualify a measure, it goes to the voters. The legislature can't do a thing you about buy, it. You bypass the parliament. And in Switzerland, every initiative goes into the parliament and into the government, and you take more time to discuss about it, because the more you discuss about it, you th the more you understand also that initiatives have their rights, have their points. And, and here it's really a game to get to, get the initiatives, get it on a ballot, get the wording you want, and don't let the other side There's have no a review viewpoint by on it. And, 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 and just, Bruno, just briefly, if you could describe what happens. So the initiative is filed, it goes to the to the parliament, the legislative body, and what can that body do in a, in a, in a Yeah, the body has the right to discuss it, to say we recommend a no in the vote, or to make, for instance, a counter-proposal. Uh, and, and this gives also very often the, the possibility to initiators to draw back their initiatives. Very many initiatives are, are drawn back. They make a counter-proposal to who? The, the people sponsored to the, or to the public? Does the public get to vote both on the initiative and the counter-proposal? Yes, I mean, if there is really? a, the initiative, which is maybe a radical proposal, and then there's a counter-proposal trying to address the same problem but finding out a solution, uh, then you can vote. You can vote yes to the initiative. You can vote yes to the counter-proposal. And then you get a sort of question, which of these decisions would you uh, prefer if both get a yes? And, and, and th this is the one way. And the other way is you have a constitutional initiative because on the federal level we don't have legislative initiatives. Okay. So no but laws passed by initiative at the federal, at the national level, just, cons just constitutional amendments? Not initiative-based. Every law might pass when the people don't like it and then they put it on the ballot. They can reverse it. Exactly. Yeah. But the point is, when the parliament sees that an initiative has, a, has some points, it proposes changes of laws, and when they are accepted, often the initiative is retired because the people got already, without the vote, what they wanted. That would be very good for us to have. Yeah. What exactly is the criteria to gain citizenship in Switzerland? I presume the same in all the cities, not only Zurich. How long does it take to become a citizen and uh, what is the criteria to enter the country? To enter the country is very easy, but to, to get the Swiss citizenship is very difficult. And uh, every canton has its own rules. It's, uh, every it's state, yeah, province. Every state, every province. And uh, in Zurich you have to be, for instance, 10 years you have to live there. And you have to be acquainted to the local culture. And after 10 years, you have the chance to get the citizenship. You ha in, in the German's part, you have to speak, you have to understand, you have to be able to, to, un to make a conversation in the local language. Right. So in the French part, you have to speak French, and the Italian part, you have to speak Italian. And if you apply for citizenship, how long does it take to, to wait to enter the country, to uh, just enter the country? 
No, in, uh, you can immediately come to Switzerland. That's oh. no problem. Entering the country is easy, yes. but to be allowed to stay there and to be allowed to become citizens, that's a, a more difficult well, point. And you, you are right. What, what I, is the I, process? And what, what do you, who do you apply to and who says you are now a citizen? No, it's a very. Di I don't want to count at, uh, really? say this here because it's much too boring, yeah. and uh, <laughs> it's not interesting. It's 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 too long, too difficult, okay. and too uh, demands too much uh, efforts. And I think those countries are more intelligent uh, as a as a purpose to integrate people when they when they allowed to become citizens after five years or three years. And, and you don't have to wait eight years or ten years. And you're in, in your, co your, your country with somewhere close to 30% foreign-born? Uh, foreign-born is not the same like yeah. foreign citizens. Right. But we have 23% so-called foreigners and nearly 30% of people who have not been born in Switzerland. But where I am also born in Japan. I lived seven years in Japan. But uh, they, these they don't mind. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, so they, they, a Japanese guy, he would have to... Uh, uh, work and live and pay taxes for mm. more than 10 years in Switzerland before he can apply to Swiss citizenship. Mm. And you're right, th this is the real point, because I also think you can also uh, respect democracy by giving participatory rights to the non-Swiss citizens. And there are six provinces, especially in the French part, who do this. And every province can, every state can say how he wants to to deal this democratic question. Mm. But in, in the German-Swiss part, too many are very much uh, making high obstacles to get the citizenship, and still they don't allow non-citizens to participate in the process. So that means that in some of the, those French parts you mentioned, those six parts, a non-Swiss a non citizen can vote in a local yes. election or vote? Yeah. I, I have a, my institute is in the French part, in the youngest state, so to say, mm. and there they can even vote as foreigners uh, for the Senate. We have the same system. We took the same system from the United States. We have a House of Representatives and the Senate. And the Senate is more important than the House of Representatives, but it's governed by the, by the state laws, how you vote for the Senate. And there, in the, in the canton of Euro, uh, the foreigners can also vote for the Senate. Hmm. Can a foreigner in these cantons vote for <coughs> national parliament or just the, the canton? The canton level uh, office. It's, it's the Canton level, right? No, the, I just said, right, I when I said the Senate, I meant the National Senate, the, oh, okay. the Federal Senate. So, but this is an exception. Right, right. I don't want to make the, uh, make paint the picture too positive, but there, are, there is an exception, or there is a beginning for the better way. Okay, my, my real question is, <laughs> uh, you know, in California, the initiatives are, are Dominated the camp. I want to know more about the campaigns and how they're won or lost for initiatives and referendums mm -hmm. once they qualify, once they're put up for the voters. Obviously, in California, we have 38 million people. It's not easy to organize field campaigns, door to door campaigns. So, clearly, television advertising, radio advertising, that is really what dominates. So, in Switzerland, when that's not allowed, what tools are used by campaigns to win? Uh, in sports, time is the most important and perhaps even in, in the banking system or investing money. But in politics, in democracy, time is only the second and third important criteria. When you, when you, are, when you want to quick, fix quick everything, you exclude people. When you, when you let the process have time of negotiation, 
discussing, dialogue, then you are inclusive, then people can participate, and then can people also make their mind. Because a democratic decision, a referendum, is not a, a photograph of the opinions. It should be the result of an opinion-making process. Well, let's, 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 but let's bring this down to the and, question. And, and what is the, just, what, how, what does that mean uh, in a campaign? This does mean that bef after you, you, you deposed your signatures and the vote, in Switzerland the law says it has to be maximum two and a half years, but not just three months. Maximum two and a half years. Normally, you have two years between the deposit of the initiative and the vote. And in these two years, the, the, those who made the initiative, they, they write books, they write articles, mm -hmm. they make public meetings everywhere in the country. In, in our country, before you vote, you have thousands of public meetings. Mm -hmm. And you have thousands of, of debates like this, radio debates, TV debates. The, the problem is not that only the ads are forbidden, but the program is full of political debate. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why you only have entertainment, because a good, uh, a, a good public debate is... is, is it's important it, to know whether Lindsay Lohan got to the court on time, or if she was 10 minutes late because the paparazzi delayed her. Yeah. Um, I, I think that... So you're asking this question, and I think just... just for, for listeners to kind of think about. In California, um, once you submit your language for an initiative, you have 150 days, which is essentially five months, to <coughs> gather sufficient number of signatures. Um, and typically that's somewhere around 700,000 for the state, right? Um, and then after that, if you qualify for the, for the ballot because you've gathered enough signatures, your initiative essentially goes on to the next statewide ballot. And so depending on when you submitted your signatures, it could be that you submitted your signatures sometime in April or May of, let's say, 2010, and you're on the ballot in November of 2010. And so there's a very short period of time, both for during the signature gathering period and also the um, period that leads up to the campaign to talk about what your initiative is about. You also raised this other question about um, can we create a stopping place for an initiative after enough signatures have been gathered to go through the legislature or to go through some kind of public forum for people to talk about? And those kinds of proposals are um, actually weaving their way through the legislature. We see other states that do that as just a, a stopping off point, whether it's the courts or public forums or the legislature to, to tweak and to engage people before it gets to the ballot. Bruno, one again. Yeah, I, I think also one important difference between California and Switzerland is that in Switzerland, many votes are not initiatives but referendums, which means that they are about a decision made in the legislature brought back to the people, mm. which referendum means bringing back. So this is another, another, another uh, dynamic because it's, it's faster, you need less signatures, and it's about an issue which has already been discussed many times. And this, this, this creates, a, I think, different ways mm. of campaigning, and it creates also a much more, I mean, a, a profound idea for the legislator that if we don't do a good job, this will be, be brought back. Now, 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 why is there that difference? Now, here in California, it's actually, the conventional wisdom is that it's easier to qualify an initiative in the referendum. It, it takes, you know, initiative law and a referendum law takes the same number of signatures, 
5% of the number of votes in the last gubernatorial election, and you have more time if you initiate, you have 150 days rather than 90 days for referendum. What's, what's, what, how does it, what's, is it, is that a cultural difference that you have more referendum, or do you make it easier to qualify a referendum than an initiative? No, I think w one profound mistake in that is, of course, when it's the same price and you get some, some other reward. I mean, if you have to pay the same and you know exactly you would get a better payoff for that, uh, then you use the other instrument. I mean, in Switzerland, there was an idea to introduce, for instance, a, a general initiative bringing an idea forward to the parliament, and the parliament could do then what they want. It was made in the same way, 100,000 signatures in 18 months, but it wouldn't be the same price. So this wasn't used, and we had to abolish it again. I'm sorry. So let me just make sure I understand. So it's 100,000 signatures in 18 months to get an initiative on the ballot? Is it the same for referendum? No, 50,000 in, in, uh, in 100 days. Uh, every law which passes the parliament huh. is open for signature gathering for 100 days, and when 50,000 people want, that's 1% right. of the electorate, then this law has to go to the so, referendum. So it's fewer, so that's referendum is 50,000, though in a shorter time, and initiative is exactly. 100. But you know, the, the, I think the real difference is the relation between citizens and parliament is totally different. We... we because somebody is a parliamentarian, he's not already a gangster. And for in in your country, <laughs> it's nearly like that. And 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 also, I, I, when I listened to you before, I also thought perhaps your state has too much power. One, the Swiss state has not so much power. Mm. Uh, a lot of power is still in the civil society and not in the state. You that know, might be one of the reasons also. I, I think the other important thing about what you've said, um, whether how many. Uh, how many people it takes to qualify, what the process is, in a comparison, it's so much more serious. See, the referendum process is after a debate on a, on a matter has already taken place, and the public is, is going to be angry enough to say, we don't want that, you made a big mistake. And we've heard it, we don't like it. And the other process takes place over a long period of time where there's a thoughtful amount of discussion Ours is really much more like a, 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 a elongated poll. It's more like a, 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 a combat between athletic teams. Uh, but I think what characterizes this is the seriousness with which they take the initiative process. I, know it's, I think it's very hard to change the culture also, uh, between the, the relationship between the politician and the, um, and the electorate. I was wondering about the issue of uh, tyranny of the majority, <laughs> which I didn't hear come up in... Yeah. Um, I know in California, um, as, as things work now, um, uh, as we've seen before and recently, um, a majority of the electorate through the ballot process can vote away the rights of, uh, of the few. And I was just wondering, and that's something that there's a lot of debate about right now in, in California, and I'm wondering what's, what's the experience in, in Switzerland? You know, th this is a very delicate question, and the answer is, is not so easy, because First of all, we, we didn't say until now that when you want, on the federal level, you have the initiative process to change the constitution. In order to get a full, a full success, you need a double majority. You need the majority of the people and the majority of the cantons. And because you have small cantons and bigger cantons, like in, in, Sweden, in the United States, uh, in the smaller cantons, the people have more power to prevent you to do something. It's, it's a respect to the small and not uh, that everybody is governed only by the majority rule. And the second is, uh, Switzerland belongs to the civil, civilized European countries. They 
they are members of, uh, of the Human Rights Convention. It's a kind of a Bill of Rights, which, uh, which is, was the lesson of the Second World War, uh, that people have to be protected also against the state, mm -hmm. even against the majority of the people of a state. And in this sense, you have basic rights, which can't be the object of the decision-making process at home. Yeah. And, but, and now, uh, to make it very complicated, this interface between direct democracy and uh, human rights, as we say, is not well done in Switzerland. That's why you had this famous initiative uh, again for the ban of the construction of minarets, which passed, although it was against the freedom of religion. Mm. And the fact that we have now this sentence in the constitution will be challenged in Strasbourg, in the French city, where you have the court who protects the European human rights, or the, you can say protects the, the rights of everybody in Europe, and not the 500 millions, the 800 millions, the big Europe. And this sentence will be banned by this uh, court. Mm. So we voted, in fact, on something we should not have voted. Mm -hmm. And in order to protect the human rights, but also to protect the dignity of direct democracy, mm -hmm. we, should make, we should improve this interface. You know, I think that the, the tyranny of the majority is a, is a difficult thing in California <coughs> with our initiative process. But the way that we've developed it over time, and it doesn't always work, it doesn't work everywhere, is by, by the, con the, the third branch of government. And by the Constitution and by judgments of people who have positions for life and are not affected by popular will at a given moment. So each system sort of tries to build in its checks, its formal checks and balances, and, and none of them can be perfect. Uh, and that, you know, some of our recent votes may be overturned. Yeah, I think that one of the interesting proposals that's out there in terms of reforms for California is rather than waiting until after a uh, vote is taken for a court to be able to decide on the constitutionality of an issue, there's a proposal that particularly when it affects the civil rights of any um, uh, protected group, that it ought to be able to be reviewed by the courts and decided if this is going to be unconstitutional because it fundamentally takes away um, individual rights that are protected by our constitution, then it, it as you say, it should not be voted on. Um, and the idea is that you wouldn't even get to a place where it would be on the ballot. Um, because in, in bringing it to the ballot, you are um, creating wedge issues between um, the very population that we're trying to bring together. I brought up behind the doors an interesting idea, and I'll just let people think about it. I'm not saying that it's necessarily a good idea because I know that there's a lot of problems with it. But <laughs> there's green there, room confidential. There are countries um, around the world, including many in Europe, that have a quorum requirement, um, and that is that um, not only do you have to pass, for instance, an initiative by a majority vote, but also that a certain percentage of the population has to come out to vote, otherwise it doesn't count. And the idea might be, um, again, I'm not saying that this is the right idea, but we certainly see a problem in California, which is that campaigns tend to focus on only the most likely of voters, tend to only talk to those, maybe it's because of a, a cost issue, maybe it's because of a strategic issue, but we, we see a very... Um, small cross-section of people who turn out to vote 
uh, casting ballots and making a decision so that in many years you can see that only a single digit or maybe even 10% of the entire um, electorate is making a decision that will impact on the entire state's population. And that small cross-section is not necessarily representative. And that's, that's the real problem. So is there a solution? Maybe it's, I think that that's something worth talking about. Bruno, briefly. Yeah, and we will call that one of the stupid ideas uh, you <laughs> could have because uh, experience really shows that when you introduce this type of disablement of the process, that you give those who are not participating the right to decide. Because then, of course, when you have this, this possibility, you have three options. You can vote yes, you can vote no, and you can vote, you cannot vote. And the non-voters and the no-voters <coughs> are always winning. And we see that all over the world, that as soon as you have such a rule, there is always a strong claim for don't go to vote, don't participate. And it's really a bad thing because it undermines mm -hmm. democracy, the democratic system and the democratic ID. So what is the difficult thing is uh, when we are looking into all these uh, challenges and problems is how can we design systems which are really enabling democracy mm. and uh, participation and not which ways are there to disable all different problems and dilemmas we have. And I think this is the, the biggest problem of our democracies today is that they are much too much designed in order to, to make things impossible than to make things possible. I love the word you got there, and I'm going to steal it, someday, and that is disable. Because I think that, that is, there is a tendency to, when you see a problem, disable the system from operating and will be saved by it. Um, and, and in some way, whether it's term limits, mm -hmm. whether it's, in my judgment, pro pro some of the propositions we've passed, we've got a problem, disable. Don't let, it don't let anybody work. Yeah, two sorts majorities are always about uh, <laughs> making the minority uh, having the right to say no and nothing happens. Okay. Thank let, you. Let me, let's end it there. I just want to make one brief public service announcement. Um, um, and, and thank you for coming. Um, if this is a comparative exercise interests you or you have friends and, and pe know people that you'd like to hear more of this, um, this is sort of a teaser for a, a five-day event from July 30th to August 4th. Um, this, uh, this summer in San Francisco at the University of California Hastings College of Law, um, we'll have people, experts, um, uh, uh, practitioners, uh, uh, scholars, journalists, activists from uh, six continents and currently uh, half, the United, half of the U.S. states and maybe more talking and comparing um, you know, in sort of direct democracy and also in, in constitutional approaches to democracy. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's our attempt to sort of stage something of a global intervention for California. Um, so if you want to be part of the room uh, uh, looking at that, um, it's a free and public event. You just have to get yourself to San Francisco. Um, mm. And we'd love to have you, and we'll give you a free lunch each day as well. <laughs>